Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. Good morning slash afternoon, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Go ahead and grab a seat, man. It's so glad to be back worshiping with you guys. My name's Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, And we are going to be doing a Bible study this morning. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and throw a hand up in the air. One of the men or women around the room would love to get a Bible into your hand. Uh, We're going to be studying from the book of Exodus, which is like you start Genesis, Exodus. It's the second book in, and we're going to be looking at Exodus 34. We are uh, three weeks into our summer series titled uh, Undivided. And we've been exploring what it means to live as worshipers. The entire series is built on the premise that we were created for wholehearted, undivided worship. We were created for wholehearted, undivided worship. Worship is central to our original purpose. It's actually even hardwired into our being. We have this natural desire to want to declare the worthiness of those things that we deem as valuable. Now, in fact, the word worship comes from worthship. You think about that word friendship. Uh, when we have friends or when we give our friendship to another person, it's like we're, we're friending them. Well, in wor- worship, it's the same. We're giving worth to another. We're, we're attributing worth to another. And we are closest to our created purpose when our worship is directed wholeheartedly and undividedly at God. In fact, as we encounter God's presence, his inbreaking glory, like we were experiencing, even in, in some of that worship that we were just experiencing earlier, we become formed or reformed into his image. And then we reflect his creative power and purpose in worship. This is what worship is. And we do that for all of creation, not just for us, not just for God, but for for all to see. This is what it means for us to lean into our purpose as sons and daughters of God. We become more whole as we worship more wholeheartedly. We become more like him as we reflect him through our undivided worship. Last week, uh, Shelby did a fantastic job preaching about what it means to to declare God as holy, holy, holy. She pointed us to Psalm 24, where David asked the question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who has the kind of heart ready to stand in the presence of the Almighty, to, to stand in front of the holy God? The answer, says David, it is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart who doesn't trust in idols or commit themselves to like little g gods, the one who has placed their life, as the apostle John would later say, in the hands of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As David was writing Psalm 24, he was undoubtedly recalling an often quoted passage in Exodus where God calls Moses back up the mountain, the mountain where he had already given Moses the Ten Commandments, where Yahweh had met with Moses like, like face-to-face, like a man meets with a friend. 
And God is calling Moses back up this mountain because his people had already broken covenant. Just like those broken tablets that Moses had thrown down on the ground in anger, his people had broken their covenant with God. In less than 40 days, Israel had brought their worship to an idol of their own making. And now, now it kind of seemed like God was done with Israel, heartbroken, and rightfully so. So Moses pleads on behalf of his wayward people, Lord, if you aren't going with us, then I don't want to go. God says, okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses, seemingly from left field, maybe sensing that God was kind of in a yes kind of mood, uh, he says, with the, he follows with this audacious request, the second request, show me your glory. And God again says, yes. Would you stand with me as I read this text out over us? Exodus 34, starting in verse four, it goes like this. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all of the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I have commanded you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will become a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Come, Father. Come, Son. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, you, whose name is Jealous. We long to meet with you. Lord, we pray that you would lead us as we navigate some deep waters today. Would you teach us how to think rightly about you and to live righteously before you? We need you to be our rabbi, Jesus. So we open up our hearts and our minds and we say, Lord, you lead us, you teach us. We wanna be more like you after this is all done. 
And we pray this in your amazing name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. Exodus 34 is one of the most quoted passages in all of the Bible by the Bible itself. Whether it's prophets or psalmists or New Testament writers, few passages are pointed back to more than Exodus 34. And this is likely because there are few places in Scripture where, uh, where God so clearly identifies himself. Moses boldly asks to see God's glory, and God generously gives Moses his name. Beyond Yahweh, I am the uncreated one, God declares his very nature and character, who he's going to be to his creation. Exodus 34, kind of, it reads like a personal bio page of God himself, as if God is saying, if you want to really see me, if you want to really know who I am, Moses, the most important aspects of me, here you go. I am compassionate and gracious. I see you in your despair. I know your conflicted heart, and I come towards you even when you hide. I weep with those who weep, and I tenderly care for you as a mother bird cares for her young, even when you push me away. I am slow to anger. I patiently desire that none would be lost, even even agonizing with you, alongside you, as you wrestle with your sin. Far from that grumpy old man, God, up in the sky with lightning bolts, my fuse is so long. I want to see you whole. I am abounding in love and faithfulness. I'll be there when you need me because I am love. I define love according to my measuring stick. And that means that you can count on me because I'm not going anywhere. I'm steady. I'm faithful. I'm trustworthy. And I maintain my love to thousands, to millions, to billions. My love never runs dry. I am bursting with forgiveness. That means I don't give up on people even when they give up on me. And yes, I am just. I will not leave guilt unpunished. And the consequences of your sin might spill onto the following generations, but I will never give up on you. And my name is Jealous. Wait, what? What what do we do with that last one? I mean, it kind of feels a little bit out there, doesn't it? What do we do with a jealous God? Are we supposed to view God as some kind of like needy boyfriend or girlfriend who keeps kind of showing up randomly to check up on us? I mean, today we're more prone to connect the idea of jealousy to an insecure lover than to the maker of the universe. So how do we we reconcile all these incredible things about God with his jealousy? Well, first, we need to clarify what the Bible means when it says that God is jealous, when his name is jealous. Because we associate jealousy with insecurity, and we don't really see God as being insecure. So because of that, our concept of jealousy is much closer linked to the idea of envy. Eric uh, Tonus, 
He's a professor and chair of theology at Biola University. He clarifies this for us. He helps us. Like those outside of the church, few Christians realize that a godly jealousy exists. And seldom is any distinction made between jealousy, which can be godly, and envy, which never is. Part of the problem is that for most English speakers, envy, which is the desire to gain possession of something that does not belong to you, and jealousy, which is the desire to maintain possession of something that does belong to you, are used synonymously. He, he would later go on to say, when God is jealous, it means that he continually seeks to protect his own honor. It is not only the emotion that leads divine wrath, it's also the cause of God's loving pursuit of his rebellious children when they go astray. To understand the jealousy of God, it's essential that we grasp the nature of God's commitment to humanity, especially to his followers. Repeatedly, the Bible uses two very specific relationships to describe how God interacts with us. This creator, the definer of reality, how he thinks about us, two relational paradigms that give us handholds to help us grasp our relationship with this incomprehensible God. Handholds. Think like, uh, anybody here in the room ever do any rock climbing? Any rock climbers out there? Raise hand. Oh, there's a few of you out there. Way more rock climbers in this gathering than the last, I'm just telling you. Think about like the, the comparison between like Smith Rock. Anybody been to Smith Rock, right? Giant like boulder that shoots up out of the ground. It's crazy. There's parts of it that are like leaning towards you and you see these men and women that are climbing up it and they're like, they're defying gravity. I have no idea how they're doing that right now, but they're like Spider-Man, like crawling up the wall, right? Compare that in your mind to the idea of like a rock gym, right? When you walk in and there's like, hey, I think I'm gonna do the yellow route, you know, or the purple route. I'm gonna do the purple route to go up to get to the top, to get to my destination. It's, it's kind of like this. God gives us these human images, these human relationships to help us have handholds to approach him rightly. These relational paradigms, they're, they're like somewhere between a metaphor and actuality, but they help us understand the level of intimacy that God is calling us to. And, and the two paradigms that I'm, I'm talking about specifically are God as parent with us as his kids and God as husband with us as his bride. There are others, but these two relationships, they come up time and time again from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. God is like a good father giving good gifts who protects even the fatherless. And, and he's like a, a mother bear protecting her young. God is like a loving, faithful husband who rejoices over his bride, who is faithful even when his bride is not. Now, we don't have time to look at all of the passages that talk about these two giant images in the scriptures, but I did throw up a list. I did make a list. If you want to snap a picture at it, it's very interesting. I encourage you to explore this later on, these primary images of how God interacts with us. But what I want to focus on is that God puts our relationship with him in the same category as parenting and as marriage. The kind of relationships that carry loyalty and commitment, 
The scriptures use the word covenant, which unfortunately in our day and age, there isn't very many examples left of in society. But a covenant with God is like, it's like a contract built on honor, faithfulness, and love. God's commitment to us is a covenant commitment, like that of a marriage or like that of loyal family members who love each other. God has literally locked himself into a relationship with his people. And this relationship, it acts as the foundation of many of his responses. He is the good parent. He is the faithful husband. And so when Dr. Tones says, jealousy is the desire to maintain possession of something that belongs to you, God's jealousy is holy because God made us for relationship with him. He made us. He made us for himself. Not as some robotic toy for him to play with, sending us off to do his bidding and then later discarding us when he gets bored. No, he made us to be a family where, where he is the parent and we're the kids. He made us to be in a marriage where he's the husband and we're the bride. These relational paradigms are there to help us understand that God loves us. God loves us. And his jealousy, it's the result of a broken heart. He wants his family back. He wants his family back. Friends, please like, let this idea sink in for a moment. We have like these characters of who we perceive God to be, but I'm telling you, the scriptures paint the picture of a God that is crazy in love with you. And, and, and he's jealous for your affection. He wants you to be with him as a family. It's in the core of his being. He wants wholehearted and undivided devotion. And when God thinks about you, which by the way, he does, the emotions that come to his mind, they're all familial. What's more is that he knows things about you that you don't even know about yourself. And so when he calls us away from our idols, he does so out of a desire to make us whole. Not to like hurt us, not to hold something away from us, but a desire to make us whole. Every time we set down our stuff and we step towards our faithful husband, we become more whole. Every time we pull our eyes away from our screens and we lock them on our heavenly father, we become more undivided. Our idols, time, money, Sex, power, violence, image, all of these things that are around us that we, that we give ourselves to, they have begun to own us. Our idols are fracturing our souls. And even as we lose ourselves in our escape of choice, Instead of finding the rest that we long for, our souls continue to break apart as we give ourselves yet again to another little G God in our search for peace. So what do we do? 
How, how do we respond to this heavenly father, this faithful husband whose name is jealous? How do we step towards wholeness, this wholeness that we're longing for? Well, I think Moses helps us out in Exodus 34. Remember, God called Moses back up the mountain after the people had been unfaithful, worshiping a God of their own making. Moses asked God to go with them and then shockingly follows up his request by asking God to see his glory. So God starts speaking his name out over Moses, his character, all that he was over Moses and having his goodness pass in front of him. And how does Moses respond? Verse eight, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. How do you respond to the awesome character and nature of a God that loves you? Well, first, you worship. And I don't know if you're like a circle in your Bible kind of person, but this sentence has three kind of big chunks in it. The first chunk is like Moses bows to the ground. Literally, the, the verbiage there is he humbled himself to the earth. Remember, again, worship is about authority. Worship is about allegiance. Moses wanted to be super clear with God who was on the throne. So quickly, he hits the dirt. God, this, you are God. You are above all things. He comes to him on his face in worship. When was the last time that we bowed for any reason, right? I mean, it's kind of, it's so countercultural for us. Like, we bow for no one. I feel like I just quoted like seven movies right there, right? Like, it's so counter to our being to humble ourselves, to get on our face before anybody is so counter to our human nature. But Moses hits the ground at once. That's the next little ch chunk there. At once, in urgency. God, he, he doesn't wait for something more convenient. It's like, well, God, this dirt's kind of, it's kind of dirty. I don't want to get anything on my robe. Or wait, you know, I'll do it later when other people can see me doing it so they all know. No, he hits the ground at once. His response had urgency. And he worshiped. And this worship, it wasn't a show, right? Because there's nobody else on the mountain with them. Moses is like in the secret place. It's just him and God, and he's urgently on his face in worship, responding to the God who has just revealed himself. And he says this, verse nine, Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, Forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all of the world. The people who live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Moses reaffirms his request. Be with us, Lord. Lord, we, we want your presence. We don't want to go anywhere. If you are not going with us, be with us, Lord. I know we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But Lord, we want you with us. 
here. We don't want to go anywhere without you. And, and I know this, this people, they're stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious, and they're hard to lead. Moses knew this like firsthand. But forgive them, Lord, Moses says. Forgive them. Please take us as your inheritance, your family, your bride. And God says, okay, okay. Moses humbles himself, worships, repents, and pleads with God to go with them. And God says yes, because God always goes where he's wanted. And I feel like this is the statement for the church of our day. Let's be that people. The one that says, God, I don't want to go anywhere if you're not going with us. Well, we don't want to do a show about you. We don't want to learn things about you. We want to meet with you. And when we move in our city, when we move in this place and in this time, we don't want to move on our own strength because frankly, we're not very good at it. We want to move in your power. Go with us, your inheritance. Moses responds to God's name in humility, worship, and repentance. And God responds to Moses' request with covenant. Verse 11, obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you all the ites, all those ites people. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. God says, okay, if we're gonna do this, then you need to listen and obey. All, all that you see in me and the things that I have called you to do, you need to obey. You need to follow me wholeheartedly. And in an act of obedience to my covenant, it means not giving your allegiance to any other little g-gods. Remember, worship is connected to allegiance. It's connected to authority. Where we give our authority, our allegiance says who we worship. We give ours, acknowledging that God is creator, that God is king. The difficulty in 2023 is that our treaties are so subtle. Our altars, our sacred stones, our Asherah poles, they're so integrated into our everyday lives. They're so accepted as normal. But God's call is clear. Don't get snared. In the words of Jesus, if your eye causes you to sin, poke it out. Your hand, cut it off. Now, I'm not really sure what Jesus would have done if people would have actually started doing that. I suppose he would have just healed them. But still, it's the heart of that idea, right? The heart that Jesus is driving at. He's challenging us as disciples. How far are you willing to go to get all that God has for you? How far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to go to get whole, to become wholehearted, 
undivided. How far are you willing to go? What are you willing to smash? What are you willing to cut? I wonder in this moment, is there a sacred stone that God is calling you to smash? A social media account where, where you've used it to numb the disappointment over your life. God's like, it's time to knock it down. Or, or maybe that retail therapy that you're using to, to help get you over that last broken relationship. God's saying, time to cut the cards. Or how about that busy schedule? That one that we're using to cover up all of our insecurities. It's time to smash it on the ground. This is where I keep my schedule. I led a team in Glasgow. My wife and I led a team in Glasgow like a number of years ago in Glasgow, Scotland. And, and on that team, we were going through kind of a rough season. There was this amazing young man. Uh, and, and honestly, he was just walking, he was just going through it. There was a ton of things that uh, had been done to him and a ton of things that he had done. And he was dealing with this very thing. I remember going for a walk with him and saying like, I mean, what, what does it look like for you to cut your hand off, to poke out your eye? What, what is Jesus saying? It's time to smash that. And he's like, I, I think it's like, it's like being here. I think God, I think I need to like, I think I need to, to smash this image that I have of myself and I need to be more honest. I need to tell the truth. I need to repent to my wife. I need to repent to my family. I need to go home and make it right. And he did. Cut, cutting off his hand looked like him literally undoing everything that he had in Scotland and moving back to the States to make things right. That was the idol, the idol of his own pride, the idol of his own image that he needed to break. And the result, healing, wholeness. It's incredible what God has done in that family and in their lives. This is how God calls us back in. He says, look, those idols you can't share. You can't give some of you to them and some of them, some of you to me. What are the idols that are standing between us and God? Friends, God is as close as we want him to be. Maybe it's time for us, his people, to spend less time worrying about everyone else's idols and more time dealing with our own. Maybe it's time to show God that he's actually wanted we want him more than anything. Verse 14 goes on. Do not worship any other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And now it's like a full circle. We land where we began, a call to worship God alone, the Lord, Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, the God who calls us into wholehearted devotion so that we can become wholehearted. You know what's interesting about this sentence is that it can be translated in a couple different ways. They're both nuancing the same idea, but the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God can also be translated the Lord who is jealous for his name is a jealous God. John Mark Homer, he clarifies this idea for us. He says this, Yahweh is jealous for his reputation. In fact, people coming to see him for who he really is is one of the central themes of the Bible. 
That's where we come in because Yahweh is locked in relationship with us. There is a symbiotic relationship between Yahweh's name, his reputation, and how we, the people of God, live. Because Yahweh's name is also our name. Throughout the scriptures, we read that Israel is called by the name of Yahweh. The idea here is that we have an intimate, family-like relationship with the creator, like a spouse or a child. What Yahweh wants is a living, breathing people to put his name on display, to show the world what he is like, not only by what we say, but by how we live. We are called by God to put all of those amazing characteristics of God on display because we're God's family. And when we live out that wholehearted identity, we reflect his qualities to our to our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends and our roommates. And this is a part of the reason why God calls us away from idols, away from the divided heart. Because let's be honest, the world does not need more of our answers. It needs more Jesus. And I've said it before, I'm gonna keep saying it until the day I die, the world needs more of him. And it's a part of our job to bring it. It's a part of our job to reflect it. What's more, the Bible actually calls us one more step further. It calls us to be jealous for God. Calls us to be jealous for his name. The word it uses in the New Testament for this idea is the word zeal. You see, in a familial relationship, it's not enough for one person to be jealous for the other. Now in a family, we're jealous for each other. We, we long for each other. We, we protect each other. We're for each other. And God's saying, I want that. I want that kind of relationship with you. Both sides need to be jealous. You know, it's interesting. When, when I was preparing for this teaching, I often set aside like times to like pray, to reflect and, and, and allow the, te the text to kind of change me. A part of our goal as teachers, is to be taught by the text ourselves. In fact, I would, I'd argue that's kind of been one of the failings of the, of the modern church is that we've had teachers who exegete passages, but they don't allow the passages to exegete them. And, and the scriptures are clear. They call us to change, to be transformed, to be more like Jesus. Anyways, I was I was preparing for this uh, passage, for this message, and I went for this really long walk, and I prayerfully asked God, okay, Lord, what does it mean for me to be moved more by this idea of godly jealousy? And sometimes those prayers are dangerous to pray. I'm just telling you. That last Wednesday, I got home late after a long day of meetings. I was tired. Um, I, I'd kind of been a little bit stressed and it was like 96 degrees that day. You guys remember that? Yeah, it was like super hot. And I walked out, I walked from the 96 degree weather into our house, which was also 96 degrees. And I'm like, wait, something's wrong here. And I discovered, was told that our air conditioning had stopped working. Of course it did on the hottest day. So awesome. So awesome. I then opened a letter from the IRS that was sitting on the counter and discovered that there was a small mistake on my youngest daughter's taxes, which meant getting them a whole bunch of paperwork ASAP. Problem was, 
Hallie was nowhere to be found. Love that so much. So I set about trying to fix the problem by myself without her, which was difficult. I could feel this like odd frustration beginning to like bubble inside of me. Any parents in the room connecting? How could she do this to me? I mean, where, where was she? Where is she right now? Shouldn't she be taking care of this? She's the adult. And why am I sweating so much? So, so I did what every dad does. I texted. And then I texted again. And then I called. Then I texted again. And I started pressing that question mark button. Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Why aren't you responding to me? And finally, I set off the alert on her phone because yeah, I'm a dad. That's what I do, okay? And then... She finally got home. When she finally got home, she found me sitting in a dark room, sweating, staring at a computer, and she quite pleasantly walked in and said, everything okay? I was like, no, not okay. After five minutes into my lecture, which actually, to be fair, is relatively, that's relatively quick for me, I realized I wasn't angry about my long day. I wasn't angry about the air conditioner or the taxes or even my inability to get a hold of Hallie. I was actually just sad. You see, Britt and I, we've entered into this, or coming into this new season for us. It's called empty nesting. And in the next couple of months, all of our kiddos are heading out the door into their next adventures, right? They're leaving us in this quiet house. And the feeling that I was actually experiencing was anticipated loss. I had begun to grieve her departure. I had begun to miss her because I love her. The next morning in my quiet time as I was writing out my apology and processing the previous day, I heard a gentle whisper. This is what godly jealousy feels like. I want you to tell my family that I miss them. I miss them. I'm jealous for them. I grieve their absence. I want to spend time with them. We're family, and I just miss being with them. That's godly jealousy. Not some aloof, standoff God who's keeping us at a distance, but a God who desires us because he loves us and wants relationship with us and is jealous for us. As we consider what it looks like for us to respond to God's jealousy, there's two questions. I just would love to like, leave you just a moment to think about. The first question, is there, is there an idol like, that God is just calling you out on? When I rattled through that, was there something that was like, ding, 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 ding? Is there something in your life that has gotten in between you and God? What are you gonna do about it? What are you gonna do about a God that is jealous for you, longs for you, wants you? What are you gonna do about this idol? God's calling you to it. And the second question is, is, what does it look like for you to be jealous for God's name 
tomorrow. You see, it can be easier for us to be jealous for God's name here, you know, because we're in the midst of worship and our hearts are moving. But what does it look like a Monday morning when you're sitting in the office? Or when you're sitting around the dinner table with your roommates or your family? Or like, what does it look like in those environments? When God, God is jealous for his own name, what does it look like for you to be jealous for him in those places tomorrow? Would you stand up to your feet, please? I found myself as I was preparing this message on multiple occasions, just feeling, experiencing the weight of God's desire for relationship with his people. And I just wanted to, I just want to be the kind of pastor that stands up here and says, God, you're one here. I want to be like Moses. I don't want to, I don't want us to be a community, a family where we're okay with doing church without him. I want this to be a place where he knows that he is welcome. So I want to invite you just to to close your eyes and open up your hands. And I just want to speak that statement out. Lord, God, you are welcome here. We believe you are there. We know you are there. You are welcome here. And we don't want to go anywhere without you. So lead us, we pray. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.